from 1400 to 1700. Draw a map of Africa, showing its divisions and marking the most important places. Subtract 937,465 from 9,320,541. These are just some of the questions that featured in the first external school exams in England, taken in the summer and winter of 1858. The exams were set by Oxford and Cambridge universities and have gone on to form the template for our A-levels and GCSEs. In today's podcast, we're going to find out just what those exams were like. So Daisy, how are those exams similar to ours today? First of all, probably the ages of the students taking part. So as I said, these exams were set by Oxford University. The, The summer of 1858 ones were set by Oxford University. The winter ones were set by Cambridge. And they were set for students who were, the junior ones were for 15, 16 year olds and the senior ones were for 17, 18 year olds. So it's exactly the, the kind of same ages that we have now for GCSE and A-levels. And these are written examinations in a range of subjects that are being set by obviously this external body. They're being set by the, the university. Schools will put their students in for them. Written examinations, they're taken in uh, standardised, supervised conditions. You know, there'll be an invigilator there. They're marked by external examiners. The papers are taken to the exam venue by uh, examiners who take them in a locked box and often are wearing a cap and gown as well. (laughs) Um, So you've got the same sort of security that you have around exams today. There's a set timetable as as there is today. Kind of everyone who's taking these exams in all the different centres nationally, they will be uh, taking them at the same time. You know, so there's that set timetable. And the range of subjects, there's, there's quite a few similarities with the range of subjects being assessed too. So you've got English language, sort of English composition paper, English literature, arithmetic, um, some, some more, more complicated maths, physics, chemistry, history, geography. You don't have a subject called biology. You've got, I think you've got zoology, comparative anatomy, botany. So there's some things there which will go on to evolve towards being biology, but uh, and obviously lots of, of, of languages, so Latin and Greek uh, and also French and, and German. So there's definitely similarities to subjects being studied at school today. Why did they use those age groups? One of the major factors in getting these exams up and running was that there were a lot of students who were going to school and studying quite advanced subjects at school, but they didn't want to go to university. And actually, if you weren't going to a university, it was really hard to certify what you had done at school. And what had happened in the years before this, the years before 1858, is that there were students who would take the University of London London entrance exam, even though they didn't want to go there. They just wanted to get the certificate to be able to say, look, you know, here's what I can do. So in a way, these Oxford and Cambridge exams, they are kind of filling. There's a demand for this. There is a demand for it. And that's one of the reasons why these exams are being set up to fulfil that demand, essentially of, of, yeah, of, of students who are probably going to leave full-time schooling, don't want to go to university, but want some record of what they have studied and what they have achieved. Interesting. And we often think of there being a bit of a rivalry between those two universities. So did Oxford come up with the idea first and then Cambridge wanted to copy them? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And again, it's not, not entirely clear kind of sort of exactly what's going on here, but it's certainly the case that at the start of 1858, Oxford say, right, we're going to do this and we'll do it in the summer. 
and it does seem yeah, like Cambridge kind of follow in really quickly um, and want to do their own thing. So you've got these Oxford exams, which are in the summer, which is what we're used to. And then the Cambridge exams are in the winter. They're like a week or two before Christmas. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it does seem like there must have been a little bit of, of rivalry there. And the other really, really interesting thing about both these sets of exams is that the dons who are designing them and marking them and involved in their administration are very, very senior people. So it's some of the the senior and most kind of um, most kind of I guess accomplished sort of professors at both universities who are involved in in setting and, and assessing these exams. So it's quite a big deal. Um, it really is. And then, in what ways are those exams different from what we are used to today? So the biggest difference is in the makeup of the students taking them. So first of all, there's only a couple of hundred students doing them. So the summer Oxford ones don't have exact numbers, but the winter Cambridge ones, three hundred and seventy students take them. So really not very many at all. When you consider the GCSEs and A-levels that we've just had, well, the GCSEs, which are, you know, English and maths will be taken pretty much by everyone. Uh, you know, you're looking at, I think there's about 600,000 uh, kind of in that cohort, in one cohort in a year in England, uh, something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's a big difference <laughs> from 370 <laughs> kids to over half a million. Uh, so it's a pretty self-selecting bunch. Girls at this stage are not allowed to take these exams. There's actually a bit of a fear, I think, that there'll be too much for them. It's too intense. But that does shift quite quickly. So by 1863, actually, girls are allowed to to take these exams. And in 1867, they can get a certificate. And that change comes about quite quickly because of uh, the efforts of two pioneering female educationalists known as Miss Buss and Miss Beale. And we're going to do a future episode on them because they're, they're pretty significant figures in, in in kind of Victorian education, the world of Victorian education. Um, so they campaigned for girls to be able to sit these exams and they campaigned quite successfully. But in this first year, 1858, it is just boys uh, who are taking taking these exams. There must have been quite a few changes, really, to, to get from the system we've got in 1858 to get to where we are now. I mean, obviously, scalability, and you're not going to be able to have such prestigious dons overseeing and administering the system if there are hundreds of thousands of children taking them. One of the biggest differences, I think, between what we have now and what we have then is the nature of the exam timetable. And it is actually quite astonishing looking at this 1858 exam timetable for both Oxford and Cambridge, because the nowadays the exam timetable is quite extended in terms of duration, in terms of, you know, it'll run for weeks. It runs over, you know, a, a large chunk of the summer term and, even, you know, some exams I think start even before the summer term. But there will only ever really, for most students, be two exams a day. There's like a morning session and an afternoon session. And most exams are not longer than two hours. I think there's a couple that are 2.15, 2.30. The 1858 timetable, there's three sessions a day and there are three hour long exams. <laughs> so it is really full on. So I just want to give you a flavour of um, a day for the, the junior candidates for, I think this is the Oxford paper, the Oxford exams. But let's have a look. You know, on the Tuesday, uh, they would do nine till 12, three hours in the morning, Latin exam. They'd then have a two hour break, then two till five on arithmetic and algebra. So another three hour exam on maths <laughs> and they get an hour's break and they go again 6 to 8.30 p.m. on the rudiments of faith and religion. And it's like that. Yeah, it's like that pretty much every day. That's the juniors. <laughs> and they go to they do a Saturday morning as well. Uh, the seniors do all day Saturday. <laughs> uh, and the, that's the Oxford exam and the Cambridge exam is kind of similar. So they're doing these really, really long days that are incredibly full on. 
And the other really interesting thing is when you look at some of the questions, there's lots of sort of incidental detail in the questions that shows that these kind of long hours are just normal for everybody. So, you know, those kind of maths questions you get where they say, oh, if it takes 10 men um, three days to do this much work, working 10 hours a day, how long will it take five men to do the same or whatever? And all the assumptions are that people are doing 9, 10, 11 hour days. But that's not obviously not just the manual labourers in made up questions. That's the case for these students as well. So very full on days, but compressed into six days, unlike now where it's spread across weeks. And um, in the Cambridge Assessment Archives, they have a letter from a, a girl who took these exams a bit later, I think in the... Um, maybe 1890s or whatever and she was saying uh, after doing uh, one of her exams she um, needed some smelling salts to revive her to get ready for the next exam but again when you look at this timetable you can kind of see I think I'd want more than smelling salts to get me through this (laughs) Um, so yeah that's very different um, as well it does make a bit more sense of the fact that they were worried about you know girls finding this too difficult because you know (laughs) it is is intense yeah Yeah. (laughs) I'd be worried about anyone. <laughs> yeah, it is intense. You'd be, you'd be, I mean, and nowadays, I think we would say everyone, <laughs> girls and boys, you're worried for their mental health <laughs> doing uh, this kind of sort of intense uh, uh, amount of exams. But as I say, you know, relatively soon after girls were taking them and uh, do seem to have survived. <laughs> so they seem to have been fine. So that's a big difference. I think the very intense timetable. Other differences. There is, I said the subjects, you know, it's sort of similar subjects. And, and there are, I would say, most of the subjects that are here are probably being studied in one way or another today. But the, 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 there are subjects today that weren't assessed then. So nowadays you have, you know, things like probably, um, you know, business, sociology, PE, a wider range of languages. Those are not uh, available. Those are not options um, in 1858. And, and the, the big question, I think, when we talk about differences that everyone will want to ask about is, are the questions harder? And this is not an easy question in itself to answer. And we will spend a bit more time, actually quite a lot of time, (laughs) uh, investigating this in more detail. But if I just give a really simple example now with the fun thing that everyone wants to do, which is, you know, let's compare the questions. The questions are so much harder. (laughs) So, uh, you know, simple answer. You read these questions and you think, wow, uh, that's that's pretty tough. So let me just give you a little example of, of what I mean by that. Um, I looked up a GCSE maths paper from a year or two ago, um, and the first question was, circle the answer to 150 divided by 5, and you've got four options, 3, 30, 300, 3,000. All right, so that's maths today, circle the answer to 150 divided by 5. I think I can just about do that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the, on, and that's, that's a non-calculator paper from, from, from a year or two ago. In 1858, obviously no calculators then, an equivalent early question on the junior paper is... Divide 5,933,905,674 by 9. Ugh, I can't even remember how to do long division. So (laughs) that's the kind of difference we're talking about. Now, I I will just caveat here that whether an exam paper in its entirety is harder or not is a much more complex question, which we will spend some time on. But I thought it would just be fun to just get an idea of the kind of questions (laughs) that were on these papers. And the kind of questions that, yeah, these uh, these poor old 15-year-olds are spending uh, three hours slogging through. What I wanted to ask was, were they in any way prepared for the exam? Because nowadays we would have a syllabus that people would work to, so we would have a sense of what kind of topics needed to be covered and, and what we might expect to come up. When these exams were set in 1858, were there any kind of form of preparation? It's hard to piece this together. You sort of piece it together reading bits of the examiner's report. And it, it does seem that 
that yeah there was some guidance as sort of to set texts and the type of text you'd be reading so the literature text is is king lear and it appears you know the students have been notified of that so there's there's certain things that they have been told in advance uh, to study but yeah there's not a syllabus and there's definitely not a mark scheme in the way we would be familiar with today so in some ways you could say it's in some ways you may be sort of less transparent and perhaps in some ways just maybe relying on a bit of shared understanding so it's, it's probably a little bit of just assumptions that people know what to teach but then yes definitely some detail about what what the sort of texts are that that, that, that will be studied so yeah a, a bit of a mix but definitely nothing like nothing at all like the kind of detail you would be used to today so do you think we've made enough changes since 1858 or, or maybe we need to make some more so this is a question I think people ask a lot. And actually, I, I think maybe every exam season in the summer, where people talk about exams in the past, you can almost maybe get, get two uh, opposite critiques. Uh, for example, I would say you probably get there's a progressive critique um, of, of our current exam system and there's a traditionalist critique. So what do I mean by that? What would be the progressive critique? That would be our exams today in 2023 are actually too similar to the ones in 1858. They might say, why are we still herding children into exam halls? Why are we still giving them these written examinations? Why are we still messing around with you know, papers in lock boxes? <laughs> like, why haven't we got the things on screens? <laughs> can't we do better than this? You, you, can't we move forward? Can't we be more, more advanced? So as I say, that would be the progressive critique of the 2023 exams, that they're actually too similar. Um, and, and perhaps, yeah, the subjects are too similar too. Why are we we're studying the same subjects? Haven't, haven't, hasn't thing, haven't things moved on? And the traditionalist critique would be the exact opposite. The educational traditionalist would look at these exams and would go, these are so much harder. They are so much more difficult. We have lower expectations for teenagers now than we did 150 years ago. We might think we're superior to the Victorians, but actually we're a fallen people. Uh, you know, if they could look at us messing around with our 150 divided by five or whatever it was, they'd laugh. So those are your two opposing critiques <laughs> that we um, haven't changed enough or we've changed too much. What they have in common is they're both quite negative about the current exam system. So I am uncharacteristically going to tread a little bit of a middle middle path here and say that um, they're both perhaps slightly too harsh on our current system. And there are reasons why our current system is like it is that are not bad reasons. And uh, look, I'm someone, I, I work for an assessment organisation who we do assessment very differently. And if you gave me a magic wand and let me control the exam system, I would actually make things look quite different. <laughs> but I, I still, you know, notwithstanding that, do look at the current system and I kind of understand why, why it is like it is and think that some of these critiques are not quite fair. <laughs> so I'll respond to each of them in turn. You know, you get this progressive critique all the time. Why are we still herding kids into exam halls? Isn't there a better way of doing this? Well, actually, it's, sometimes it's quite hard to come up with a better way of doing it. And we saw that in the pandemic when we couldn't run in-person exams. I think we saw then that there is a very good reason to have supervised and standardised conditions where students produce work independently that we know is their own and we know they're not getting help from parents or teachers or coaches or whatever. Um, and that is actually a really important principle of exams. And it's not just important in the UK, it's important globally. We've also had a sense of that with coursework, really, and the, the critiques levelled at, at coursework and, and the way that coursework disadvantages certain children. Absolutely. And the weird thing is, the more technology changes, weirdly, I actually think the more we real, we're going to realise doing exams in person is more important. My take at the minute is ChatGPT and all the similar large language models, the generative AI models that can produce extremely good text on demand. <laughs> I think they are going to mean, a, 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 you know, even more of a comeback 
for the in-person exam. So, so far from technology consigning the kind of exam hall to the dustbin, I actually think it's going to reinforce its place in our system. So that would be my response to that. In terms of, you know, questions about technology, could we be getting kids to do uh, assessments on screen? Again, uh, you know, there's, there's good arguments for and against this. There's ways you could make it work, but it is tricky. It, students respond differently to assessments on screen than they do on paper. Some of the big international uh, assessments, PISA, uh, have gone on screen and they've found that students do a lot worse on screen uh, when they're taking exactly the same questions on, on screen as on paper. So it's not straightforward. This is not just people, uh, you know, assessment organisations being backward. <laughs> there are genuine reasons why uh, we haven't moved over. And I'd say something the same about the sort of range of subjects question when people say, oh, why are we doing the same subjects as 150 years ago? Turns out those subjects are useful. <laughs> Again, you look around the world, most countries have an assessment system where the students do some you know, literacy, their home language, some sort of maths, history, geography, social studies, some sort of science. That was true 150 years ago in England. It's true now. People say we can't predict the future, what skills kids are going to need in the future. I think actually if we're living in a civilization in 150 years time, we'll still be assessing some form of literacy and numeracy then and they'll still be valuable. Uh, I'll make that prediction. <laughs> so I don't really have a problem with, with that either. But does that mean I agree with kind of everything the traditionalists uh, would say? Does that mean that I think we're a fallen people because, uh, you know, students are not being tested on um, dividing five billion by nine or whatever it was? Well, this is, is complex. So it, it is easy to look at those 1858 exams and say, oh, my God, they're so hard. But we have to remember a couple of things. The first most important thing is these exams were taken by a couple of hundred students. So it's an incredibly small and self-selecting segment of the population. And if you widened that out and assessed every 15, 16 year old in England at that time, well, the best estimate we've got is that about at this time, probably roughly maybe 20, 30 percent of the adult population were illiterate at that point. So if, if you'd given these exams to the entire population of 15 year olds in England in 1858, there are quite a few of them who just wouldn't even be able to read the questions. So you, yes, you can pick out exam questions from 1858 and say these are so much harder, but those exams are being set for a completely different segment of the population. That's a really important caveat. And the other really important caveat, which people always forget when they look at questions like this, is we don't know in detail how these 1858 students, even this self-selecting bunch of a couple hundred, we don't know how they did in detail. We have an examiner's report, but we don't have data. So how many of them were able to answer some of these tougher questions? Maybe, maybe they couldn't. Now, actually, I think with those long division ones and some of those arithmetic ones, they probably were... The reason we know that is some of them were set as questions where you couldn't get the certificate if you didn't answer those. So I suspect some of those ones they did do quite well on. But there are some really suggestive little bits of detail in later examiners' reports, which do show that these students were capable of making quite basic errors. So there's one detail from an examiner's report where the examiner says, um, the examiner's marking a dictation task uh, and says that the greatest difficulty was found in Alexander for which youthful ingenuity contrived to find almost 40 different spellings. I can remember looking at an assessment of, uh, I think, eight or nine-year-olds a few years ago, where they, it was something to do with an umbrella. They had to use the word umbrella. I had never seen so many misspellings of umbrella. And I, I thought of this examiner with the misspellings of Alexander. I remember I was ended up keeping a tally of, of misspellings of umbrella. Oh, no. So it's interesting to think in that sense, um, you know, some things don't change. And I'd argue Alexander, I think that's easier to spell than umbrella. So there you go. Um, um, so, yeah, you've, in terms of how much how difficult they are, this traditionalist critique, you've got to bear in mind, 
it's a very different segment of, of, of students who are taking these. So that's very important to remember. I do find it really frustrating as an archivist who, who works with the, the history of education, because so often we have the exam papers, but finding examples of people's work, it, it's, it's very hard. It's this sort of thing that wasn't wasn't particularly saved or, or, or valued. Absolutely. And um, yeah, as you, as you say, it's, you're only getting half the picture. That's absolutely right. And from an assessment theory point of view, it is very frustrating because, as I say, it really limits actually what you can do and the extent to which you can tell whether you know where standards are over time. Are we going to be brave and have a talk through some of these questions? Dave? I think let's have a look at them and we can. Uh, well, look, my degree was in English literature and yours was in history. Is that yeah? That's right. That is right. Yeah. So <laughs> why don't you 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 fire away? You know, you fire some English questions at me and I'll tell you what I think of them. Um, and if if they if I think they're any good or not, and we can do the same for for history. One of the nice things about these papers is that there is a bit of choice, so you're not uh, having to answer all of the questions for your short English composition for uh, the the fifteen year old age group. You've got a choice. You can write a, a short essay on coal and the advantages which a country derives from a plentiful supply of it, which actually still feels pretty topical. <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah, um, yeah. Or on the habits and uses of any one of the domestic animals. I think that's what I'd pick. I think I'd write about a cat. Or, and this is where I think uh, some modern audiences might come unstuck, a brief sketch of the life of Oliver Goldsmith. Yeah, so these, these are so interesting because these are actually, the structure of this is probably quite similar to what happens today in English language, unseen writing tasks. Um, and what you're trying to do, what the examiners here are trying to do, and examiners today are trying to do, is to come up with a topic where you can get the students to write something. So something they'll know a bit about. So not something incredibly esoteric or obscure. You want them to be able to respond. Um, and actually, this is a, a part of my day job. So we set, we don't set, no more marking, we don't set um, national exams or high stakes exams, but we do a kind of low stakes uh, uh, writing exams. And so a, a part of our job is is coming up with tasks that, for, that students can write about and topics. And it really isn't easy <laughs> because it's really hard to find topics that every student will know something about and that won't unfairly advantage or disadvantage a group of students. And every year when I was teaching, every year after the GCSE English language, there'd always be, you know, everyone would always look to see what was the topic and there'd be complaints if it was something you felt wasn't good for your students. This one from 1858 is on Oliver Goldsmith. And I just find that astonishing because there are loads of really you know, great, <laughs> famous English writers <laughs> whose, whose reputation has probably endured a bit more than Oliver Goldsmith's. <laughs> so it's so interesting that they've picked him. You know, what's the sort of parallel from the, the 21st century? Again, I remember when I was teaching, I remember one year, the nonfiction writing, it was um, a short reading passage and then you had to write something. And one year it was on Ellen MacArthur, the sailor. I remember all my colleagues saying, oh, you know, our working class boys, that's no good for them. That's a real middle class girls topic. I remember a couple of years later, it was Joe Calzaghe, the boxer. And everyone and everyone was like, oh, that, that's great for the working class boys. They're going to do really well on that. Um, so there's always this thing of, is there a certain topic that suits sort of certain groups of students more than others? And this isn't just teachers kind of, you know, getting um, picky about things. That there is a whole body of research now. Um, and Edie Hirsch is the big kind of proponent of this, which does show that the topic of a reading passage or indeed a writing text it does influence how well you write on it. 
you know, if you know a lot about something, it's easier to read a passage about it. Um, so it is important to pick a topic that all the students will know about. I think the great challenge nowadays is how do you do that when, you know, students have many very different diverse interests and when perhaps a national curriculum, you know, we have a national curriculum in England now, but it does require, you know, it does have a lot of latitude in it. So it's very hard to guarantee that all students will have studied the same thing at the same time. And this brings me to that second question you just read out, which is on the habits and uses of any one of the domestic animals. And Lizzie, you, you said you write about cat. Well, I can tell you uh, doing stuff with animals is a great thing for children to write about. They love writing about animals. They love reading about animals. <laughs> I remember one year there was a, a GCSE where there was a bit on meerkats. Oh, they loved it, you know. <laughs> so um, it's always, yeah, an animal is, is, is always generally a good bet. Having said that, this year, not in the GCSEs, but in the reading exam in England for 11-year-olds, there was a bit of controversy because there was actually a reading to a paper. The topic was um, texts and bat colonies. Um, and yeah, actually that felt like that was a bit too hard and people kind of complained about that. So maybe you can overdo it with the animals. Maybe texts and bat colonies is too obscure. But I, I quite like on the habits and uses of any one of the domestic animals. I think that's a good one. I think you gave that to, to kids today, maybe reword it a little bit. That would work brilliantly. And the other one that you read out on coal and the advantages which a country derives from a plentiful supply of it. Well, if you just change advantages to disadvantages, that would work brilliantly today, probably. Um, and there's lots of stuff in, in kind of yeah, modern exams about kind of the environment and environmental issues. So I think this one, yeah, apart from Oliver Goldsmith, I'd say this is one, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. A lot of, lot of, lot of overlaps here. So, yeah, I quite like those. And then we've got the questions for the 18-year-olds. It's a little bit of a step up, I suppose, in terms of the, the background knowledge we're expecting them to have. But again, there's a choice, and it's a, a broader choice now. We've got a choice of four questions. The first one is a short account of the life and character of Lord Nelson. Then we've got sketch the plot of any one of Sir Walter Scott's poems or novels. The third question is give a short account of any one of the manufactures carried on in Great Britain. And then finally, we've got supposing that a friend has written to ask for some account of the school or schools at which you were brought up, write a letter in reply. I always like those letter ones. And again, that, that's a sort of recurring trope. Enormously so. Uh, it's, they're not letters now, they're emails. But, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so what have we got? We've got four options here. Write about Nelson, uh, write, write about a Walter Scott poem, or, you know, tell the story of a Walter Scott poem or novel. Write about um, a factory, what factories produce, uh, you know, and then the final one, write about your school you're at. Now, the last one <laughs> just feels much easier. <laughs> Even then, <laughs> I would love to know, again, you don't have the breakdown. I'd love to know the breakdown of the percentages picking each option. But that final one, write about the school you're at uh, give an account of it that really pops up in lots of different formats nowadays as well um both in kind of national exams and also i think just as kind of in school writing tasks yeah it's interesting that we, because we don't have a mark scheme and it's an examination in your ability to compose a piece of prose if you wrote a short account of the life and character of lord nelson and got all your facts wrong do you think you would be penalized for it because that's that isn't really what this exercise is meant to be testing exactly exactly so i can only assume that you know lord nelson and walter scott's poems and novels are just such cultural touchstones uh, in 1858 they're just assuming uh, kind of every student is gonna uh, gonna know something about them 
when you read the examiner's report, then most of what they say about in the composition section does tend to be about, yeah, the quality of the composition, uh, the, the kind of the accuracy, the technical accuracy, so on and so forth, the, the liveliness of the prose. So, yeah, that is what it's meant to be uh, assessing. But that is absolutely, again, um, as I say, a topic that's very, very relevant today, very relevant you know, to, to my day job. People are always saying, well, when we're judging a piece of writing, should you be, uh, you know, should you be assessing it just on the quality? What if there's factual errors? You know, how much does that matter? Um, and uh, when you read examiner's reports for GCSEs today, I read a really funny one the other day where the students were asked to uh, write a letter kind of for or against the music festival happening um, in their, the sort of backyard of their school or something. Um, and one of the students had, said, had, had written something where they said, oh, we could invite all these famous singers. <laughs> I think the examiner's report's comments was, well, I just felt like I wanted to mark this down because it was just very naive as if you're going to get all of these, you know, famous singers and songwriters to come and perform in your school's your school's <laughs> playground. Um, so the, there is an element where it's kind of hard to separate the, 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 the content from the, the, the kind of the quality of the, 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 the prose, if you like. But but yeah, I think that's what this is trying to do. And then there's some quite intense questions about King Lear, including state any obvious anachronisms you remember in King Lear and quote any passages you remember in King Lear. Yeah, so the King Lear questions, there's quite a lot of them. So this is the English literature paper we're moving on to now. And I I do get the impression with these King Lear questions, you get the impression that it really shows that this is the first time these professors have set an exam like this. (laughs) Because it just feels like they're just having a bit of fun and coming up with some crazy ideas and Oh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what they they think about this. (laughs) And yeah, so a question stating the obvious anachronisms in King Lear. I mean, there's always lots in Shakespeare, aren't there? There's like watches, there are watches and and Cleopatra or whatever, or Julius Caesar. So there's always lots of these. uh, You can, yeah, you can, you can spot this kind of thing. But uh, yeah, you'd never get a question like that nowadays. Uh, You wouldn't get anything kind of, kind of close to that, I don't think. And then, yeah, even the ones, there are some which are maybe a bit more similar to ones today, but um yeah, quote any passages which you remember in King Lear, which seem to allude to the moral and social condition of England at the time when the play was written, uh, and specify any allusions to customs and practices belonging to an age less refined and civilised than our own. So you read some of these, they feel a bit a bit easy to parody. Um, and actually, the, the, the great parody of these types of questions is the book 1066 mm. and all that. Uh, by by uh, Sellers and Yateman and is a parody of this sort of style of exam paper and particularly it's a parody of the history questions so we should come to the the history now and it's quite hard to read some of the history questions without thinking of Sellers and Yateman's book 1066 and all that Um, totally good king bad king good king right yeah 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 (laughs) absolutely Um, and I, I think there's something about all of these questions not just history ones there's you do just get this sense of high Victorian certainty that radiates from them, uh, which uh, as someone who's, you know, read a lot of modern day exams, you don't really get, I think. And it's kind of hard to quite put your finger on what that is. But yeah, I, I think, yeah, there's just a sort of a certainty here. So here we go. Name in their order. The Kings of England from 1400 to 1700. Trace the descent of George I from Henry VII. Okay, what was okay, the origin well, of the Wars right. of the Roses? <laughs> So I, I try I tried to do these when you sent them to me, Daisy. And you know, I wasn't relying on the sort of old historian adage, not my period. I you know, I, I really had a good stab at these. And yep. I thought it was interesting that they said name in their order yep. the kings of England from fourteen hundred to seventeen hundred. Ha- do you leave the queen out? Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> Is I it know. a trick question. You got that. <laughs> I thought that. I really thought that. If you got that nowadays, 
if you got a question like that nowadays, everyone would be up in arms, wouldn't they? You'd be, uh, <laughs> people be on Twitter saying, you know, what about Elizabeth? Uh, what about Mary? What about Anne? Uh, so there's, and especially 1400, 1700. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a fair few women then. So that was, yeah, that's a really interesting one. Yeah, I could do that. I couldn't necessarily have done all of their dates exactly, but the question didn't ask for that. So that was fine. Trace the descent of George the First from Henry the Seventh. Well, I had a bit of an advantage there because I went to the newly reopened National Portrait Gallery and they had one of those handy family trees, which I was having a look at. So I sort of almost did it, but then I got I got a generation out. I did the tricky bit where you've got to get from Henry the Seventh to James the First. Because that's a bit, right, yeah. you've got to do some wobbling around there. But what about, you've also got the Glorious Revolution. Yeah, you've that's got, where got, I got... got a bit of a got, wobble there, right? Yeah, I got a bit unstuck. Yeah. I, I missed out a generation. Okay. I thought that okay. George I's mother was a sibling yeah. of Charles II and James II. Okay. But in fact, his grandmother was a sibling of Charles I. Right. So, you know. so I could say there, Lizzie, you know, foul, uh, you know, <laughs> bomb out on that question. But actually, I don't know. So this is the other thing about these questions. You know, modern exam papers have all got the marks in brackets after each question. Mm. So you can look at a question and go, oh, you know, there's a mo- one mark for that, but there's four marks for the other question. So the four mark one, they obviously want more detail. But these, there's nothing. So you, you just think, well, you know, how, how many marks are there for this Kings of England one? Like, there's quite a lot of info there. Uh, if you get one little detail wrong, do you, do you get nothing? So it's, it's all a bit... It's just not very clear. And as I say, when you see things like this, you think this is really, they're having a first go at this, which is fine. It is their first go at it. So (laughs) why not? You learn as you go along. But yeah, obviously things then evolve over time where you have to have a bit more more standardisation and a bit more detail and guidance for markers over what is going to count as a mark and what isn't. And if Lizzie, you know, scandalously mistakes a grandparent for a parent, um, to what extent are we going to condemn her historical knowledge? Um, so I'm, I'm a generous marker, Lizzie. I'll, I'll give you that. You know, um, I'm nice like that. Uh, so what other history questions did you like the look of? Any others that you thought, oh, yeah, I'd go for that one. I thought they started to get a bit more interesting because then there's a question about the Wars of the Roses, the origins of the Wars of the Roses, where I felt you might start to talk about some different interpretations, possibly. That's often an interesting thing about old history exams because it can be a a little bit sort of yeah 1066 and all that dates facts and not much room for discussing historiography uh, interpretation and yeah I thought have a little bit of an interesting conversation about the Wars of the Roses sort of bring in your Shakespeare start to talk about the origins of the Wars of the Roses before you get into the 15th century yeah I think you're right I think what happens with these questions is they the history ones they start off with again the, the kind of um the factual statements that are easy to parody. So name this king, name that king, whatever. But then they do step up to some longer, more analytical questions. Like you say, what was the origin of the Wars of the Roses? That's the question here. And actually, uh, I've picked out a couple of questions from a recent history GCSE, which uh, you probably could switch in. So here's one from a history GCSE recently. Write an account of the ways in which the Popish plot affected Restoration England. That's an eight marker from a recent GCSE paper. I think you could sub that in, do you think, Lizzie, to one of the ones we've seen in 1858, and it wouldn't be that different. I think the big difference is is that the 1858 questions start off with the factual questions and then build up to these uh, longer answers. Uh, But what's interesting about the modern GCSE is you don't really have very many of the factual questions at all. No. 
and I think so it's also almost as though perhaps that's seen nowadays as a bit a bit beneath people we can all be above that now and we can do the analysis but I think when you parody these 1858 papers and say oh they're all just about facts well they're not they're kind of about everything that's what's so daunting about them they've got the facts but they're also asking you to do a lot of analysis as well (laughs) they're asking you to do everything and I think what the modern papers are doing is they're asking you to do the analysis they're not asking you to do the facts Uh, my argument and I would say you know the evidence the best evidence we have from modern cognitive science is that actually the 1858 papers are getting it right because it's harder to separate the facts and the analysis than you might think so I I think there is a value in in testing that factual knowledge and I think that's um, one thing that I I probably would like to see a bit a bit more of the other big difference I I would say see if you agree with me Lizzie is um there's no source paper. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. No, no gobbets, no, uh, yes, no, none of that sort of skill, that kind of analytical skill. Whereas a modern paper, a large chunk of it, there'll be a selection of sources and questions about those, those historical sources. So that's a, a big difference as well. As a historian, I think what I find intimidating about it is, is the breadth. Um, a question we haven't mentioned is state briefly the occasions of the following battles, the parties engaged in them and their results. And we go from the Battle of Hastings through to Agincourt, Naseby, Culloden, Bunker Hill, one which I don't even properly understand the pronunciation of. Uh, I, I had to look it up. Um, it, it was one of the wars of the East India Company, so- Sobron, um, and Vittoria, so Peninsular Wars. But yeah, I, that's... That's a lot. So that's a solid <laughs> eight hundred year spread. One question: yeah. uh, name the dates of these, yeah, the, the occasions of these seven battles, and the battles, as I say, are about eight hundred years, yeah, about a solid eight hundred years apart. And you're absolutely right about the breadth, and I, I think you're right. That's another big difference. So some of those questions I read out just now from modern papers are taken from uh, papers that are actually have quite a narrow, specific focus. Of, of sort of 30 or 40 years of history in one country whereas what this paper is expecting you to do is uh kind of have that level of detail about about 800 odd years so that's a huge difference too uh, another big difference you know this is all english history so very very little kind of global history uh whereas you there were there are global history options in the modern modern gcses uh, and an, another big difference you were talking earlier about options Nowadays, you have a huge range of options for at GCSE, uh, both between exam boards and within exam boards. So two people with the same GCSE grade from the same exam board could have studied very, very different parts of history. Whereas here, I think there's much more of an idea that there is just a, a body of knowledge that everybody should know. And that's what history is. And again, that's that kind of sort of high Victorian certainty that I guess guess I'm talking about. Yeah. It's also it's traditional history. It's it's kings. It's battles. It's political and, and military history. There's there's no social history. Yeah, nothing broader there. But then that was the time, right? <laughs> yeah, their conception of history is is probably different in in many ways to, to ours. Um, it's the way the way that that history as a, as a as a subject, probably both at school and at university. Has, has changed you mentioned you know the fact that we you don't really see the marks uh, awarded to each question so I actually felt in some ways it was kind of refreshing looking at these exams because I, I just remembered so much of my time being spent on exam technique kind of strategic thinking when you got the paper um apportioning one's time so that one could get the best possible result I remember even doing a calculation because I really couldn't get my head around standard deviation 
and I worked out how many marks could possibly be allocated to a question on standard deviation uh, in the maths GCSE and decided that I could manage sufficiently to get the grade that I wanted without learning how to do standard deviation. And I don't really imagine candidates going into these kind of exams with that kind of level of sort of strategy in place. This is, again, a, a hot topic within assessment theory. And the, the hot topic is, you know, to what extent does preparation, exam prep and strategy of the type you're talking about, to what extent does it make um, the results you get more reliable and, and particularly more valid and so what you would set talking about there of saying well I've just worked out that the time it takes me to do this question it's not worth me learning it that would be the kind of thing where you would say well yeah that's not great if that's what people are doing making those kind of strategic decisions that's going to compromise the validity of the inferences that that, that someone would make about that exam <laughs> right the results of it so when someone's looking at your score let's say you manage to strategically do all those kind of calculations really effectively and you come out with a top grade someone's probably going to assume from that oh if lizzie's got the top grade she knows what her standard deviation works and they'd be wrong because you've kind of played the system <laughs> a little bit um so there is this debate in, in in assessment theory about what how much preparation is 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 not good for the kind of the validity of the the inferences and to what extent actually in some cases actually is some prep a good thing and so the the extent to which some prep is a good thing your classic example of this is let's say you've given the kids a multiple choice exam and they've got you know when you have those little bubble sheets where you have to color in the the kind of multiple choice option Mm, so it can be marked by a computer yeah yeah exactly well if you don't if you're doing those particularly young children you need to give them a little bit of prep on exactly what they color in (laughs) otherwise they'll just won't know what to do and they'll color in the wrong thing and then you're not getting a decent readout on their ability or their attainment in mathematics. You're getting a readout on their, you know, <laughs> uh, to what extent they've they've understood whether which bit, which bit, which little box you've got to colour in or not. So there's some exam prep that is useful and and does help you give you more insight, but there's a lot that is not, and is 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 then becoming about hoop jumping, um, and. The really interesting thing, in, as I said, modern sort of assessment research is once an exam has been around for a few years, people get used to it. They can see the past papers <laughs> and you get this effect, which is known in the literature as the sawtooth effect, which shows that the kind of the results, the average scores on uh, sort of exams that have been around for a while tend to creep up and up and up. And then when you have a new format of exam that comes in, uh, the scores sort of plummet because people aren't used to that format anymore. And that's called the sawtooth effect, because the scores go kind of up and then plummet like a sawtooth. Why these exams are so fascinating is in some ways you could say these are at the very beginning of the sawtooth, because they're the very first really school exams ever. <laughs> there would be ups and downs to that. The, the upside of it would be you would, yeah, you'd, you'd have so little exam prep because no one knows there are no past papers, literally are none. <laughs> But the downside of that would be there might be kids who just misread a, a question or don't quite understand what a question means, or there's a question that's phrased really badly and the examiners don't re- realise it. And all those things mean that students who deserve a better mark don't don't get the mark they deserve. So, But it is fascinating to see exams that have none of the kind of structures and mark schemes and sort of surrounding paraphernalia that we're all accustomed to. OK, so, we, so we've looked at English, we've looked at history. Were there any other questions that you thought seemed like fun? Absolutely. So I think the most fascinating bit of the the Oxford papers is uh, the the chemistry exam. So I 
you know, not chemist, didn't do chemistry A-level, but I was just fascinated, first of all, by the equipment that you have to have for the practical chemistry exam. And it is a really extensive list. You've got to bring 24 test tubes into the exam with you. You've got to bring two glass stirring rods. You've got to bring an evaporating dish, a tripod, a spirit lamp, a washing bottle. And they even give the address of uh, a, um, a chemical chemical apparatus supplier who will provide these for you. Um, so you've got to go into the practical chemistry exam with all this kit. And then you get all these. I, I, I can only work it out. It's, it's kind of hard to piece it together from the exam. But you get the impression they're being given all these substances and they have to work out stuff about these substances using their kit. And the best question um, which I you know, couldn't quite believe, was which of these papers contains arsenic? So <laughs> I get the impression they're being given, I don't know, some papers with some chemicals in, and they've got to work out which of them has got arsenic in. So you've just got this impression of a couple of hundred teenage boys <laughs> with all this gear, <laughs> isolating arsenic <laughs> or testing for arsenic, uh, you know, at their, at, their, at their desks. So, Well, as keen readers of detective novels, we know that arsenic was very readily available in uh, Victorian England. <laughs> it was. Well, it, it, it absolutely was. And just just a few years before this, um, there'd actually been regulations on the, the kind of sale, the procurement of arsenic, because people were worried that so many women were using it to bump off their husbands. Uh, you know, it was, uh, and, and originally, actually, it was it was banned for women to kind of procure it, but not for men. Uh, because it was just seen as the the sort of female poison as poison of choice. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a real mid-Victorian kind of moral panic. And I, I just thought it was hilarious to see, yeah, a question about, about arsenic popping up, popping up here. So, uh, look, as you probably can tell, I, 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 I love reading these exams. It's very nerdy of me, I get that. But they are just this fascinating window um, into a, another era, but an era that's had so much influence on us. And, you know, as I say, you can still see that influence in the exams we do today, even if there are a lot of differences. So, yeah, great stuff to have a look at these. And I would say for anyone who's getting their results today, well, you know, whatever you get, just be grateful you weren't sitting in that exam hall for, for nine <laughs> hours with a load of arsenic fumes. Um, you know, you've, 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 you've done well to, to dodge that bullet. All right. We're going to do another episode because exams are such a a fun topic. We can't resist talking a little bit more about them. So we'll be back with an episode about our exams really getting easier. (laughs) 